Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Ambika Bum. Ambika Bum is the Health Science and Technology Advisor for the Department of State's Crisis Management and Strategy within the Office of the Secretary. She's currently a board member for the International Biomedical Research Alliance and has formerly been Strategic Advisor to the Energy Sciences Area of Berkeley Lab and CEO of the Biotech Bicanta. She graduated from Georgia Tech and obtained her doctorate from the NIH Oxford program while also on the Marshall Scholarship and followed that up with two postdocs at the National Cancer Institute and the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great. So tell us about what you're, what you're doing now. What I'm doing now. So I am in, in the office of the Secretary of State, and I work primarily in the office of crisis management and strategy. And so that's literally what it sounds like. Um, any crisis that is occurring, the management of what that response would be, how to better plan for future crises and get protocols and you know SOPs and of different kinds, strategic relationships, make sure that they're maintained to be able to coordinate those responses. All of that happens um, from this office and I'm the health science and technology advisor to the office. So what that means for me, particularly, I started this position in December of 2019. And you can imagine then that I've been primarily working on global health security and particularly the COVID response. That must have been nuts. Oh, it's been insane. It has <laughs> been such an experience. I'm a fan of the TV show, Madam Secretary. I don't know if you've heard of it or seen it before, but it's it's all about like a secretary of state and handling a bunch of different issues. And so I semi took this position because I'm being such a fan of the show, but uh, I felt like I was in the TV show the first couple of weeks, like in the third week is when the rocket attacks happened on American citizens in Iraq and the embassy was attacked. And that led to then, you know, the U.S., counterattacking and the assassination of Suleimani, that all happened in my third week in. And as that was going on, COVID was starting to sneak up. And so it just really felt like, man, so much is going on at the same time. And it was a, it was a very eye-opening and somewhat insane experience at the beginning. Yeah, lurching from crisis to crisis, it, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, for most people, most of the time, things that happen like this in the news don't impact their daily lives. Obviously, COVID has been a grand exception to that. But for for most people, you know, they don't really need to to stay on top of the news. This is obviously quite different from you. How do you how do you deal with the volume of, of information? Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot that comes through. Being in this particular office, we are tracking information that's coming from media sources, from social media as well, but more critically from what is coming from posts. So post means um, embassy or consulates that are out in the different nations. So they're having you know their conversation with diplomats of other sorts within country, looking at what's happening on the local level. And so we coordinate with posts, but we also coordinate then with offices within the DC side of Department of State. We're getting information from places like HHS, CDC. Uh, well, that's where I focus a lot of my attention because I'm looking a lot at global health security things. You get very good <laughs> at reading emails really quickly and triaging things, getting, deleting stuff that's not so critical and, and learning to prioritize what is immediate, what needs to maybe be addressed later, um, short one-liner kinds of passing of information and just it's, it's kind of a skill you develop. I, it's hard for me to explain. At the beginning, it was incredibly overwhelming to be like 
do I have to read every sentence of each of these like thousands of emails? But internal Department of State information is passed through cables and they have a clear format on how they are conveying information. So you, can, you learn to pick up, just like in scientific papers, you know you can get the take-home points from the abstract and the conclusions. So you find, find ways of being efficient at reading, I guess. <laughs> what, what surprised you the most about what you found in this position, right? You had spent many years in, in academia, time in the biotech startup space, and then moving to government. So it's you know, a bit of a, a trifecta. What surprised you? I guess like retroactively, it shouldn't be so massively surprising, but things have a different pace of how they move in in different scenarios. I, right before I came to Department of State, I was working within DOE at the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. And I was, like you mentioned, strategy advisor to the energy sciences area. And my project there was primarily on developing the vision for a new campus that would house a bunch of facilities related to energy sciences, nanotech, quantum tech. And to get anything moving was so, you know, there's so many steps, so many processes, everything takes time. You have to get a lot of buy-in from a bunch of people. And here I came in and in week four, essentially, I was sitting in in national security council meetings where decisions like we're gonna ban travel from certain areas of the world, like certain countries completely, which had never been done before. And those decisions were made in like matters of 10 minutes to see like something like that, a decision made, and then it's enacted within like 24 hours or 72 hours, that like insanity of how quickly things can happen when you're at that level of crises or at that level of resources. Um, I, I, I thought that there would be, it would be, a lot longer process for anything to get done. But when it needs to get done, stuff can get done very quickly. And I was just surprised by how, how that can be so quick. Do you find it varies by the decision? Yeah. Oh, oh it definitely does. There are other things that take way too long. But when uh, something's of great concern for national security, stuff moves very quickly. Um, so how you define that national security priority becomes an issue. Tell us about COVID because you had a very central seat to the U.S. government response to this. In my initial days of being at CMS, we started getting reporting from Post about this new virus that had occurred. And I started digging into things from my own contacts in the virology world to try to get better perspective on it. And as things took off, it was very interesting. So I came to Department of State because... What I wanted was essentially like a government MBA experience. I wanted to understand how does leadership function? How do they get stuff done? How do they move mountains when needed? And who are the key players to actually make policy function? Definitely learned that within the first month or two of being on, in here because I was sitting in on like you know National Security Council meetings. Those are interagency meetings that are led by the White House, which are bringing in all the different departments or agencies jointly who have their different expertise to talk about the different issues. And so when we were sitting in a National Security Council meeting, or it was just about to start, and I was walking in with my supervisor, and we got a notice that Wuhan had just been quarantined. Like an entire city being quarantined was seemed insane at that point. You know, now it's like very different. But at that point, that was very shocking news. And the meeting, which was go ongoing at the point, everyone had to stop and say, we're going to take a break. Everybody needs to go back to their own agencies and figure out how we're going to manage this. And from there, all sorts of firsts happen. An entire travel advisory for the entire world. Don't travel anywhere that never historically been done. You know, decisions like these are being discussed. 
But what's interesting from a Department of State perspective and from crisis management perspective is that in the 44 years that at least crisis management strategy has existed, there has never been a scenario where the same threat was occurring simultaneously, you know, overseas as it was here, because as COVID started coming here, things had to change. And so it was um, it was a lot of management of what's happening externally, but also what's going on internally and how we are to still function. CMS um, is the lead on setting up task forces that are department-wide to co- um, coordinate what the response will be. It brings in all the expertise from the relevant bureaus and offices, and then you all sit around a table like what you kind of imagine in movies, a controlled mission room with a bunch of people around a table with a lot of computers and big screens and maps everywhere. That's the traditional model. But we had to very quickly turn that into something that was virtual. And, and Department of State has a long ways to go with technology. It's not the same as my experience from Silicon Valley and from biotech industry. So getting everybody used to new tools immediately was one challenge. But the, we ended up coordinating a virtual task force of more than 400 officers that were serving from all over the place, 30 different offices and bureaus, different parts of the world. Um, it was one of the most high profile and complex operational responses that state has executed to date. What we were managing was not so much the like foreign aid policy component of things. We were focused on within this task force evacuating people getting people out from all parts of the world. So that's repatriation task force is the name of this task force. Department of State doesn't have its own airplanes, doesn't have its own like airline or fleet of anything. Each flight had to be individually chartered or um, organized. And there were 1,100 flights that had to be organized. It brought back more than 100,000 people from different parts of the world. It was very complex operationally coordinating it. And everybody's story is so individual. There are people who are like missing their medication. There are people whose parents are stuck in some remote location. There are people, there are literally, there were times where we had to send like boats to collect people, bring them back to a town, transport them from one town to another to get them on a flight. It was really um, eye-opening and, and personal at the same time. From a management perspective, it was very complicated operationally. There's a lot of data that had to be managed. You're also wanting to understand if people are COVID positive and how to manage that. There were, how do you pay for all these flights? How do you get approval to pay for all the flights? Having flight crew to actually be able to do this because there are limits to how long crew can fly. Working with foreign governments on this, you know, getting flights into countries that don't typically have landing permissions into those countries. Uh, When there are cruise lines, I mean, cruise lines are, why were people going on cruise ships during a pandemic? But um, those are very complicated. And because there's so many health complications with this, there was an added level of work that had to be done. It was literally like playing diplomatic gymnastics, trying to coordinate all of these things. Eventually, it became very clear that there were going to be a number of policy issues that had to be managed related to aid and getting out vaccines and other things as they were developing. So there's a, we set up what was called a coordination unit that then recruited diplomats from different offices to just come and that coordination unit became the coronavirus CGRC. So coronavirus global response coordination unit, you know, alphabet soup from every agency I've worked in. (laughs) I have to like remember which one is what, but, um, now that is managing a lot of internal responses within. And so it's been very eye-opening how things have been managed globally versus domestically. My role has had less impact on the domestic side of things, but 
it has, um, I've definitely had to be involved in a lot of those conversations. And currently, I spend a lot of time thinking about how do we get people to actually take the vaccines um, and when they're available and uh, engaging with people about that, whatever their fear. It's a lot about science communication. So my job had been, as the only science person really in this office, to interpret all the science that's coming out of this and you know make bullets that are short and to the point, that get the point across, not like, as scientists, we love to elaborate. Science is evolving, like, right? Everything, you learn more as you get more data. And so no one ever wants to be so like presumptuous as to say that you know everything about everything. Um, but in these kinds of scenarios, being very assertive about things that you do know are very critical. And so my role has been a lot about science communication, for sure. It's really interesting. So I guess you kind of have to parse things very carefully to, to be emphatic about what you know to be true and hope that others are doing the same and not just being blowhards. Right, exactly. <laughs> you got the point I was trying to make across. It was also for me personally, very interesting how different worlds of mine that I've professionally gone across thus far collided at different points during the past year. My first day as a grad student, I was in the National Institute of Health and Oxford Cambridge program, as you were. <laughs> um, but on the very first day, they sat our class down, I think we were like 15 students, with uh, Tony Fauci. And I remember that conversation a lot throughout my uh, my graduate years because I found his his, you know, background in science and the way he has been the leader of NIAID, very interesting. And then circle around to like weeks into my new job, I was sitting in meetings with him as the pandemic was emerging. And it was so interesting to see what he valued and what things he was, what comments he made and how he like managed the room, I would say, at times. Um, those, it was interesting on that front. When I was sitting in the task force, I remember we'd have the news on and CNN bullets would come out about the vaccines in, in Oxford that are being developed. And because I'm on the International International Biomedical Research Alliance Board, which helps to work with students who are in this Oxford program who are working on this vaccine, it was really like, man, I know the people who did that. And like Adrian Hill, who's, who was a professor even whenever I was there, and I did some work with him, he was up on the news there. And it's just like strange to be seeing like people who you've interacted with coming around on the TV screen as you were working on stuff. And a lot of my role also began, began to be with connecting with startups on the ground um, and providing insights on what kinds of things to work on. And so it was, it was a nice merging of all the experiences I've had in the past as well. So let, let's talk a bit about those experiences and maybe it might make logical sense to go, go a bit chronologically. As a kid, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I knew exactly what I wanted to be. So what I can say is that uh, my father is an engineer. My mom is in sciences as well. And I definitely had a personal interest in, in science subjects. And I also felt like I did well on them sometimes. So that helps you. Like <laughs> for me, at least it like made me like want to do more of it because I felt like I was good at it. So I'm Indian and Indian family culture really plays a lot into kind of how your life develops and molds. And I feel like there is this respect for knowledge and education that I think has just been passed down in my genes. My father, he was the first PhD in his family. My, my maternal grandfather, he went back to school in his 40s to become a veterinarian. And he also made sure his two daughters had opportunities to broaden their horizons. And they were the first women from their town 
to go to college in STEM. So my aunt is a physician. My mom um, majored in chemistry. When my parents came to the U.S., they, you know, encouraged and were very supportive of exploring STEM kinds of, or general, any education, but um, they did encourage our STEM work. And I liked engineering, medicine, economics, and law. I liked all of those. That's what I liked in high school. Um, so I tried to like blend as many of them as I could when I went into college. And I chose to study like biomed engineering and econ because it covered as many of those as <laughs> I thought I could fit into, into education um, as an undergrad. I've always been drawn to finding solutions to things, like building stuff. And I think my parents might be a bit like that as well. And like the kinds of activities that we did as a kid, I would build like furniture with my father. I would do lots of art projects. And so it was like creating a vision about something and like completing it. And I don't know if that was my parents' way of keeping us occupied or <laughs> if that was like, I don't know that it was very intentional, but that's how, how things were. And so I get joy out of I'm like one of those people who whenever I have a to-do list I check off things it like makes me happy like feeling like I've accomplished something in the process of working like getting to a solution on something maybe I think that was that that's probably what was instilled in me from those earlier days I mean that leads you kind of to engineering in in some ways maybe that's where that came from so tell us about about grad school for grad school I was very fortunate um like you to be able to get into this one program that allowed you to have a research PhD graduate experience that's international. So my PhD work was done both at the National Institutes of Health here in DC, as well as be abroad at Oxford. And I cobbled together a project. I didn't go in with this vision of I'm going to do this particular thing and that's going to be what I like. Again, I kind of just went in with this attitude of I like solving problems, but I don't know what problem I want to solve. But like a lot of people go to grad school, and they know exactly what they want to research and dive into. All I knew is that I like applying engineering skills. And that's like such a naive way to approach anything. But that's what I did do. And what I ended up doing is I interviewed with, I think, like 14 labs or 16 labs at Oxford and similar number at the NIH. And the projects that I was discussing and brainstorming at all those interviews, the one that caught my attention most was so I went to this one lab. Lars Fugger, he's an immunologist, and he primarily works on multiple sclerosis models and studying multiple sclerosis. And while I was sitting there, he, he saw in my CV that I had done some um, nanoparticle or nanotech work as a, for undergrad research. And he, on the spot, brainstormed an idea of being able to better follow T cells in some of the animal models he has. Um, using nanoparticles if I could figure out how to do that. He had no experience with it and he had no idea how to go about doing it. He's like, if you can figure that out, that would be a project I'd like to do. And that just kind of was attracted to that idea. So in the end, I ended up bringing together four different PIs. So I had a, an advisor, Lars Fugger, who was an immunologist. At Oxford, I found someone in the engineering department whose name is Peter Dobson with some material science background as well. And at the NIH, I worked with Martin Breckbeal in the radioimmune um, oncology branch and also with Peter Choiki, who is the head of the molecular imaging clinic. And so basically the skill sets that were being or the fields that were being brought together for this was chemistry, imaging, material science, and uh, um, cancer and autoimmune diseases. So the project I worked on was developing this trimodal imaging particle. So what I mean by that is you can image it in magnetic resonance imaging, optical imaging, as well as SPECT, so nuclear imaging, and the same particle. And you can get different kinds of information from these imaging techniques. 
and to make it a platform technology that could be applied in a variety of kinds of pathologies and diseases, we tested it in autoimmune diseases as well as in cancer. So it was my first foray into nanomedicine and I loved it. I don't know what your experience was in this program, but for me, it was very eye-opening to me how interdisciplinary science is amazing. You bring, to, if you can bring resources from different disciplines together, but also different institutes and cultures. I think in, in, in Oxford, I learned how to think wisely about the smartest experiments to do because resources are let, are a little bit more limited in that university sitting. And then at the NIH, where resources were plenty, I learned about how to do science by just trying 10 experiments and see the results that you get. Um, and to be able to have a graduate experience with both of those kinds of ways of thinking, I think really benefited me. But also, the other thing that came out of this is the manager of this project was not any one PI. It was me. Um, so you learned a lot about how to manage a project, how to manage people and cultures and all sorts of things. And I, and I definitely think that those skill sets uh, carried forward in my next endeavors for sure. Yeah. So tell us about what you did in your postdocs. Yeah, sure. So afterwards, I came back to the National Cancer Institute and I worked on um, a project of specifically trying to image glioblastomas or brain tumors. Um, they have particular challenges because you're trying to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is like this extra shield for your brain, um, and getting anything across um, to it to better image is is more complicated. And so we were using basically this scorpion toxin um, that you can attach to the side of the particle to try to break through the blood-brain barrier into these tumors. And the I followed that on with another postdoc that was kind of a different perspective. So most of my work was about how do you translate things into humans and into clinic. And this was more going the other direction of understanding basic molecular science stuff. And I moved into a biophysics lab that was doing single molecule imaging. And that's where we developed some technology around a different kind of nanoparticle called nanodiamonds. They have some really unique imaging properties um, that then launched a huge part of my career after that, but it started from being in that lab and working on making nanodiamonds usable by putting coatings on them that actually make them able to be used in biomed applications. So after that, uh, as you alluded to, your your career took a, a very different turn. Can you tell us about that? I guess it starts with understanding what the technology was. So the nanodiamonds, they are particles that are essentially microscopic, you know, diamond dust. They're on the order of 10,000 times smaller than a strand of hair. And they have these fluorescent properties that are infinite. They don't ever blink or bleach. Bleach is when, you know, fluorescent signal starts going away. And that makes them very unique for imaging applications in single molecules. You can track molecules individually a lot better. But where I was interested was they also have this other property where you can control their signal because their electron spin states are such that they have a triplet spin state, which the take home from this, rather than getting into the physics, is that you can control their signal with a magnet. So if you're increasing, if you're flipping a magnetic field on and off, you can actually make the signal go from bright to dim, bright to dim. And why that's interesting is, is then if you were had them in tissue or if you had them in a patient, if you're controlling the signal of the diamond on like bright dim, bright dim, but everything else is constant, you can cancel out noise and background a lot. That's the challenge with fluorescent imaging and optical imaging in tissue and in humans is you don't get a lot of depth penetration 
because you have so much background from other signal that naturally exists from blood and water and other molecules in your skin. And so we developed an instrument that could allow you to enhance the signal coming from the diamond. And diamond material is also very biocompatible. It doesn't seem to have any toxicity issues. And so through this, we developed a method and an instrument, both the particle side, so the contrast agent that you're injecting, as well as the imaging instrumentation that would improve signal a hundredfold over conventional imaging techniques. And so what that could open up as opportunities in the clinic is very wide and very exciting because a lot of the, all the robotic surgery directions that things are going into would want fluorescent optical signals to follow, not magnetic resonance and, and nuclear kinds of imaging because those have other more complicated situations of, of how you have to image. Light imaging is the least complicated. Um, so if you have a good imaging agent, it opens up all sorts of doors. So that led to me starting Bicanta. Um, I launched the company in 2013 and we had a lot of great success. So I went through the whole journey of running a startup and developing product from scratch and going, finding customers, working with partners, legal, you know, every aspect of what, what uh, running a startup comes with. What propelled you to take that leap? Yeah. So I was thinking when I was in postdoc mode, I was definitely applying for academic positions. I was thinking about the more... I don't know if you'd say traditional, but traditional path of having my own lab. And uh, I was interviewing at universities and I was very interested in this work, not just being at the bench, but translating it to getting it out to actual patients. And for that, you have to commercialize. And well, the primary right of doing that is through, through a company. Initially, I was debating whether to try to launch a company while being a PI at a, at a university as well. But we were recognized with an award by the NIH um, for technical achievement, one of two awards that year uh, for developing a technology that has, it's a platform technology that can apply to so many different diseases. And that started actually getting people approaching me about starting a company. And so the I, then it just kind of felt like the timing was better for us to just launch this. I put all my effort into getting it off the ground. I, in my head then, I was thinking, I'm going to get this company started and then I'm going to be on the scientific board and then go back to doing uh, academia and doing research. That was my like plan. But as I started doing the startup, I was able to raise funds very quickly. And once you have money, man, can you go fast? And <laughs> can you like really build a team and get stuff done? And it was just moving so fast and achieving my bigger picture goals of wanting to actually translate this. I've realized looking back now that a lot of my career decisions have been driven by where I feel I'm making impact. Each step has been about broadening how I can personally have impact on a bigger picture and commercializing the technology definitely was going to help with that, getting it out faster. And so it wasn't this like preconceived notion that I'm going to, I definitely have to do this startup. It wasn't my plan when I was a postdoc, but I took the leap because it felt like the right thing to do at that moment. And I thought that I could, I could re-engage on faculty position discussions later if I needed to, but I enjoyed it and I stayed with the company in that path. So, so what all did you do? Man, there's so many different categories of things that you do as a startup. Initially, it's bringing on a team, raising the funds. So learning how to talk to investors is a very different skill set than learning how to talk to, you know, scientific audiences, learning who are the key players on all that kind of stuff. Come Even basics is like, how do you set up a company and do payroll? Like all sorts of things that are like minor, but you start with all of that. 
um, you build out your team. Once you have a team, you're moving really fast on the science side. I was working a lot with Lawrence Berkeley Labs at that point because we were using their facilities. I found resources that we could use. So, you know, as a startup, you're mean and you're lean. You don't have a lot of resources and you are hungry to get stuff done quickly because it is important that you deliver for your investors so you can get more and keep moving forward. There is like this time clock pressure also because you're paying people as the leader of the company, you need to make sure you can keep having funds to pay people. So there's this extra like level of uh, responsibility, but there is a efficiency with which you move. And that's also protecting your IP, getting IP in place, getting collaborators in place. So we were working a lot with customers, but also with uh, universities and we were using the facilities that we could access for free. And we ended up doing a lot of work with Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. And, you know, it's like developing, understanding your market, developing the plans for it, communicating about things, knowing how to hire and get a good team, creating good culture, all sorts of different aspects. It's It was a very fulfilling thing to have to work on such a, so many different ranges of things that are all driving towards the end goal of getting this technology out. And what, what did you guys get out? <laughs> what did we get out? So here's interesting. Being in a diagnostic space is not as easy as being in therapeutics. And so we were very fortunate at the beginning where Bicante was first being launched that there were a lot of things that sort of timed out well to get a lot of interest in our company as well. And that was the Nobel Prizes that year included um, a bunch of people who were doing nano diamond work. Google X decided to launch into areas related to nanomedicine and nanotech. And there were all these articles comparing actually <laughs> Bicanta and Google X. The timing of things was such, Y Combinator, which is this, you know, accelerator, maybe the Harvard of accelerators, if you want to call it, that decided to go into biotech companies. And Bicanta was one of the first biotech companies they invested in that had, you know, clinical directions. And so we, we the timing was really optimal that so many tech investors were turning to invest in biotech and we presented ourselves well, got a lot of funding, things went really well. Our technology development went very fast and we got to the stage of wanting to launch this into clinical trials. And then around that time is when Theranos happened and Theranos exploded. Timing is everything, right? Good or bad. <laughs> Timing is everything. In general, investment in diagnostics is a lot smaller than therapeutics. It's something mm -hmm. that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Um, and when Theranos blew up, it was a diagnostic company. Investors got spooked. And then raising money in a diagnostic space is became very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. And I tried to frame the companies more in imaging and different things, but we were only able to raise partial amount of money and not enough to really close out the full round. So in the end, we ended up transferring the technology, um, the IP back to the NIH, and I did have to decide to dissolve the company um, because timing, launching clinical trials requires a large amount of capital. I learned a lot in that process as well about how to make decisions that are tough like that because the technology clearly has a lot of value and there is interest in where it can move and develop things. But unfortunately, we weren't able to make that happen through after five and a half years through Bicanta was not the, the avenue to make it happen. Mm -hmm. do, do you think nano diamonds will one day be used for diagnostics in humans? I do. Yeah, it's already being done in a very academic setting. And there are about six different companies that are um, doing this kind of work as well. There are clinical trials that have already started and, and you know, and have completed actually 
in other kinds of not so much in cancer applications yet. Those are still working on that's where, you know, the content was focused on was we were starting with melanoma as the first target. But there have been uses in dental applications and stem cell related work. And so there is there is definitely a lot that is going on. You know, also nanodiamonds in general are used in other fields in, in insane amounts. Where the nanodiamond work began originally was all in physics, in quantum tech kinds of applications. So qubits, quantum computing, there are a lot of directions there that, so nanodiamonds are around, they're going to be around for a really long time, but translating them into medicine is, um, I think COVID actually has changed a lot. Testing, diagnosing before something, uh, you know, how much money has been thrown now at diagnostics um, in the past year. Everything about biotech is going to be very different um, after the pandemic experience, for sure. So I, I do have a lot of hope that this uh, this is going to re-kick up again. And in general, molecular imaging as a field is successful. It's doing very well, and it's going to only get better because that's the direction the medicine is heading. Um, it's really interesting, you know, speaking with a number of entrepreneurs who, who started their first companies at different times, how this this theme of timing and very, very often related to external circumstances. Um, so, you know, the dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust and, <laughs> and all this is a very consistent theme. Yeah, you know, I don't know what your experience has been, but I have found that the more and more I'm progressing through different stages of my career, it is so much about factors other than just the pure science, the technology itself. That is like what drove all of this to begin with for me. I was so interested in the technology development. It, it plays with your imagination. It's so motivating and inspiring to work on that stuff. And that continues to be there. But to actually make something have impact with it, to drive it into the market, to get it out to people, once it's out in the market for it to be wide enough reaching to everybody, those factors are a lot of other kinds of skills. It's about being good at developing partnerships. It's about communication. It is about timing. It's a lot about who you know, actually. <laughs> That's what it's really about. Um, and it's a lot of these other kinds of, I don't know if you want to call them soft skills, but you know, these others, they're not the science skills that, that take the technology forward. It's all these other factors that really end up leading to it being the most impactful. Mm -hmm. So then you took a turn into the world of nano and science policy. Tell us about that. Yeah. So while I was running Bicanta, I was uh, um, from time to time writing um, about nano policy issues as well, even while I was in grad school and postdocing. So I was on the Marshall Scholarship during grad school. And part of the you know mission, bigger picture of Marshall is about creating relationships between the U.S. and honoring the U.S. and U.K. relationship. That definitely played out while I was in grad school and postdoc for me on a, on a nanoscience level. Because one of my advisors from Oxford, Peter Dobson, he was also the advisor to medical research councils in the UK on nanotechnology. He did a lot of policy and like government advising kinds of work there. And when I was at the NIH, I um, got involved in the National Nanotech Initiative. And I invited him and did a lot of connecting back and forth of like people who were working on nanoscience policy there in the UK as well as here in the US. And so I just always had on the side this interest of how we're thinking about the bigger picture and where funding goes, because funding leads to like resources that allow you to actually do the science, right? So back to like, it's not just the science, where's the money coming from? Where is the like connections and whatnot? So even while I was running Bicanta, I continued to be engaged in those kinds of things. And I would write about nanopolicy for like TechCrunch or different avenues. 
And because we were accessing user facilities at a national lab, they would often bring in, I don't know, policymakers, congressmen, whatever, coming through to tour what these facilities are. And I would often be someone who they would talk to about how this is benefiting the entrepreneurial community and startups and like how it's creating jobs, etc. Through that, I ended up then being recruited to take a position at Lawrence Berkeley Labs in the one of the area science leads offices and leadership, thinking about the bigger picture of things. And so that's where that step took. And I, th- I mentioned that, like, I feel like I've been like progressing towards I can make bigger and bigger impact. And definitely the resources that government has is something that I was intrigued about, about how to develop multiple different kinds of technology simultaneously, move things forward. And how do you do that from a lab perspective? So that's what drew me to that position. So you've worked across all these different areas. What, what do you see as the major differences among academia, biotech startups and government? I love talking about this topic. I can talk about this for hours if you if you wanted to. Okay, so the take homes, the way that I would I would think about it is so academics are very creative. If you look at the academic side, universities and whatnot, there's a lot of creativity, there's a lot of motivation for just understanding knowledge. That's kind of where everything is driven from. And so you get some of the smartest people, the most innovative people in academia. On the entrepreneurial side, it's it's very much about speed and execution, and they're driven by the market, by uh, what can be translational and what can also bring financial return. So that's entrepreneurial as well as you know larger industry, I would say. And then from the government side, government has all these massive, massive resources, insane amounts of resources that you can then direct to different things. And what they're driven by is social impact and public need. As I'm like thinking through things of what I've experienced and what I've seen, I'm like really trying to see how we can maximize the intersection of these three things. How can we better bring across bridges between, because they're in some ways they've been very siloed. Though this past year with the pandemic, clearly the collaboration between industry and government made massive impacts. It's what drove through all the diagnostic testing technologies, you know, active operation warp speed, RADx, all of these programs were these massive collaborations, I guess, or partnerships, you could say, between both entrepreneurial but larger industry, the industry as a whole, and government, or government through a lot of money that allowed um, things to get commercialized and move quickly, and the vaccine as well, of course, you know? So this like past year has been a prime example about where the benefit of, of crossing all three of these bridges really is important. And that's kind of the space that I wanna explore more as I move forward in my own career. Cool, so so what, what areas of biotech are you most excited about? I'm gonna say the kinds of things I was most excited about like before I came into my current role, and that would definitely be Personalized treatments of rare diseases, sequencing your genome has never been cheaper. It's gone down from $95 million to $950 in just 10 years. And so that um, efficiency at being able to understand individuals, but also then tailor treatments, that's just an area, a wide area of things that excites me. I also think a lot about precision treatment, which correlates with that. So real-time imaging and diagnostics and sensing in general, those technologies combining with machine learning. So you have this auto feedback loop about stuff as you're developing your therapy or doing your therapy if it's surgical. 
And in that similar vein, Theranostics, which is a combination of therapy and diagnostics together, which is where nano, a lot of nano work happens, but other stuff as well. I think those areas have always been, in my mind, great areas for us to be moving forward in. And that, that has a lot to do with materials development and big data related information, AI, machine learning kinds of techniques all combined. Um, and, and I also find very interesting a lot of the virtual and augmented reality um, work that's happening in these kinds of spaces, though I still don't know where it's going to go yet, but I'm intrigued by some of the stuff that's going on with it. But now in the past year, in the role that I've been in, my like framework of thinking has changed a little bit about almost like putting on a public servant hat and looking at the whole of society today. I think the things that maybe are less sexy, but are really important to be working on are the evolution of clinical trials, how quickly and how still reliably we get technologies out, but also learning from from this pandemic, the resilience of a lot of our systems. And I know this isn't as like biotech and sexy, but it's about how we manufacture or supply systems or some of the materials that you need to actually develop these things and get them out quickly, the supply chains of those and the partnerships of industry and government. So again, it's not like a particular technology, but the bigger, broader picture of this. And part of it has to do with democratizing our innovations across the country. So like, if you think about GPS, it was a, a technology that was democratized and how it impacts so many different things in life now. Can you imagine where the, the benefits of GPS have gone by doing something like that? And we have all these national labs that are just treasures of our country that produce so much information and knowledge by um, linking them to actually turning into commercial technologies quicker, the policy side. So a lot of my brain work has gone towards the direction of rather than like, I'm really excited by particular technologies for sure, but what as a whole will set our country forward for the future? Like we're, we, it's in a lot of discussion about how China is going to beat us in terms of innovation within seven years and how are we going to continue to stay competitive? And some of those problems are actually not In some ways, it's some basic things. It's like having good broadband everywhere. A big part of this, if you're thinking about the bigger picture, for sure also is education of how we treat STEM education from the early years on, how who gets access to it, underprivileged and underserved communities as well. And then because of the kinds of academic journeys I have been on, I think a lot about how are you training um, as a PhD, as an MD, as a scientist, what kinds of skills are you garnering along that process, um, how you might have interdisciplinary ideas, what kinds of these other softer skills that I kind of mentioned in terms of how to manage projects. Because the reality is that some kinds of supply chains are going to be cheaper in other countries. So what are the skill sets that Americans can offer? It has a lot to do with being risk-taking, being innovative, and being good at managing things and communicating out. I mean, like, why is quantum tech a big talked about thing? A lot of it has to do because there's interest from certain parties um, about it and, uh, And that had to do with people being good about communicating the benefits of it. And so it's like these skills of also being good at communicating and other things that need to be incorporated into your science training, which doesn't really happen. Uh, At least I didn't experience it. It it happened like on the side, not not as a primary thing. I've mentioned things that I'm interested in, but also I think some of the other bigger problems to solve are not as sexy, but important things to keep our country innovative and competitive moving forward. I think the systematic approach to it is is really interesting. You know, I, I wonder how many things are kind of lurking beneath the surface, waiting to be fixed, and we don't even realize it. You know, I think I think a lot of myths 
have been exploded over the last year with how remarkably fast we were able to get almost miraculously effective vaccines out for COVID. And it really makes you think, you know, what could we have been doing differently all along and, and what can we do differently going forward, right? Like, I hope we learn from this and and maybe make changes around how we do things because certainly COVID is, is especially urgent, but, you know, Alzheimer's is urgent, cancer is urgent. You know, there, there are a lot of things that are, are really important and affect a huge number of people where, you know, maybe it would make sense to kind of review how, how we're doing things and see if we can do it faster. Yeah. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Maybe um, advice for younger scientists? So advice that I would give looking back at what my experiences have been, follow where your interests and your passions are. But as you're moving forward, whether it's in, in your particular science field or uh, as you're broadening into other aspects that impact how your science translates and gets out to folks, Keep in mind some of these other things that are also important. It's about learning what others are doing and being open to how that might shift how you're thinking on things are. Because keeping your mind open about these things brings on these other opportunities that can sometimes be so much more like exponentially effective at getting you to where you want to. It sounds like I'm saying something that's very vague, but if I hadn't been open to some of these ideas, I don't think I would have gone down the path of uh, doing a startup. And that experience completely changed everything that I've done since. And when I initially took this job in crisis management strategy, I wasn't expecting there to be any like direct application of what all the years of training I had gone into in all my specialty into nanomedicine and experience of doing a startup and working at a national lab. I didn't have any clear vision of how this was going to translate into something in this office. Um, and I was motivated to come here because of just wanting to gain another kind of skill sets and perspective and take that back into the work I do later. But also I just thought the timing of it would it would be more impactful for me to come in during this time frame than and to be a bridge into what I was gonna hope was gonna be the next um, administration and be able to bridge some of those com science communication gaps. If I hadn't chosen to just be open to that, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to also be in this position to see how the pandemic played out. Um, not that I want there to be a pandemic or anything like that, but the experience that I've gained through this, it I don't even think I fully can communicate it yet or understand it. And the kind of perspective it has given me on how I think about what kinds of problems I want to tackle and how I want to tackle them, combining the different experiences I have, all of that has first starts off with being with openness. So be a sponge, I guess, is the take home of what I'm saying. It's just as a scientist, you, got, you already are always seeking data and, and, and being humble enough to know that you don't know everything, but to actually more actively seek, it, seek out the information, it, I think it can benefit you in how you approach things in the bigger picture as you progress further. I think that's really good advice. <laughs> good. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, same here. Thank you.